You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. On today's episode, I have the great pleasure of presenting Ninochka Roska, a longtime feminist activist and writer from the Philippines. Ninochka has so many accomplishments, I can't possibly list them all, but I will try. She is the author of six books, including two best-selling novels, The State of War and Twice Blessed, which won the 1993 American Book Award for Excellence in Literature. She is a two-time recipient of the New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowship, has written for The Village Voice, The Huffington Post, the BBC, Ms. Magazine, and many other respected magazines and websites. She founded and was the first chairperson of Gabriella Network, a U.S.-based organization of women and women's rights advocates, which supported the Philippine women's movement, which eventually became a firm. At the 1993 UN World Conference on Human Rights in Vienna, Ninochka drafted the Survivor's Statement, which first applied the phrase modern-day slavery to the trafficking of women. She also brought the slogan women's rights are human rights, to that Vienna conference, after which it gained international prominence. Needless to say, she is an incredibly important and inspiring woman. I spoke with her this week over the phone from her home in New York. Here's that interview. Can you tell me about your early life? You know, I'm curious as to how you came to activism. I was born and raised in the Philippines and got both a secular and Catholic education, you know. We're, we're all Catholics in the Philippines, about 85%. So I think the only exceptional thing was one, our family was extremely mixed blood, uh, basically uh, Spanish, Malayan, and Chinese. And then there was a huge crowd always in my family house. By crowd, I mean uh, household help. And these uh, people came from different regions and provinces of the country. And so they spoke uh, different languages. We all spoke Tagalog, but they spoke, in addition to that, several other languages, their hometown language, etc., etc. And so I was exposed very early to the pleasures and the hazards of communication, you know, in different languages. Mm-hmm. And then I think there was one seminal incident when I was a kid. The uh, domestics, the help, uh, discovered I could read very early on, around five five years old. And so a number of them couldn't. So they, at uh, one o'clock in the afternoon, I think twice a week, they would ask me to read to them. Uh, they would buy the comics or the weekly fiction magazine, and uh, they would surround me while I read. And it was a very beautiful thing, you know, in the garden, breeze, uh, blowing, flowers, trees. 
and then reading to a group of people. And from that, I drew the rather erroneous uh, conclusion that one could make money reading and writing <laughs> since the the men and women of the neighborhood paid me. You know, they gave me five centavos. Each of them gave me five centavos. And that was a lot of money for a kid. There And then we had, uh, my family had uh, a very good library. I don't know why. Since nobody read the books except me. And only because I was told, don't touch the books. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, hmm, why not? There must be something in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I started reading, and from that reading, and then reading aloud to the men and women, you know, who were neighborhood uh, household help. Those were the most exceptional things. Uh, I was growing up, and then I got to the university at a very young age and realized I did not know enough. And so I spent a whole summer reading, just reading, going through. I decided to read the entire literature section of the university libraries. I was kind of weird. So I, start, <laughs> I started alphabetically. Those were the only exceptional, I think, things that happened when mm-hmm. I was growing up, yeah. And... You know, when did you first encounter the the women's movement? Oh, quite late, actually, quite late. I started as a uh, political activist, a student activist, mm. uh, because the most exclusive organization at the university was the Writers Club. And you could only go in, you know, if you were unanimously voted in, you know, nobody objected. And that's where all the leftists were. That's where I met he who would become the chairperson of the Communist Party of the Philippines. And so we started learning all of this stuff. Actually, I only got to women and feminism in 1986, which is quite late in my development. When I was able to return home, and uh, I wrote a piece on the women's movement in the Philippines for Ms. Magazine. Yeah, they, they used it as a cover story. You were a political prisoner under yeah. the, the government of Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines. I wonder if you can tell me about that. Why were you imprisoned, and what was that experience like? Whoa. <laughs> um, in 1972, he declared martial law, and then he had all the media offices, television, you know, newspaper, everything uh, closed, and about 300 men and women of the media arrested. I was, uh, well, this was what I was told. Of the around 5,000 in the list of people to be arrested, my number had only two digits. So I was in the first 100 people listed, primarily because they wanted to control uh, reportage and, uh, and so on. 
I spent six months in prison. In a, they call it a detention camp, but it's actually a prison inside the military camp. And it was most unpleasant, most uncomfortable, and very, uh, you know, it's like every minute of the day you are in danger. You live in constant tension. I uh, remember that in those six months, my sleep was so light, I don't think I even had a single dream. You know, maybe I did, but it didn't make it to my conscious mind, which is most unusual for me because I dream every night. You know, as a writer, my subconscious is is always working. And the slightest noise would wake me up. Almost all of us were tortured physically. Some were sexually abused. There was constant psychological harassment and torture. Yeah, six months. Yeah. And, I mean, do you worry that we're headed in that direction, or not we, I'm in Canada, but you're in the U.S., of course. Do you worry that the U.S. is headed in that direction? Very much so, very much so, especially with the recent happenings in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is very near New York City, where I am. It's only four, four or five hours away by car. And it's so ironic that the president who has encouraged this was actually born and raised in New York City, which we always pride ourselves in uh, characterizing as a most cosmopolitan, most liberal city. You know, we pass all these laws, uh, uh, removing restrictions on people. There, there is a uh, an atmosphere of fear, outrage, and helplessness. What does one do? You know, if you are just a woman, a woman of color, you know, it's like the everyday sexism and racism we live under, which is the what we call the microaggressions of racism and sexism have become macro-aggressions and really dangerous and threatens everything and all the hours of your day. Now, you were the founder and first national chair of GABNET, which is a U.S.-based organization supporting the, the Philippine women's movement, which has since evolved into a firm, of course, why was it so important to form a specifically U.S. Philippines Women's Solidarity Network? The uh, our rationale, well, the the center of attention at the time in the Philippines was the U.S. military bases. People don't know, but at the time, the U.S. kept its largest military bases in the Philippines, and actually under the agreement, we were supposed to host 22 military bases, you know, for a small country, that is a huge uh, imposition. 
and uh, this bases uh, the Clark Air Force Base and Subic Naval Base. Uh, these bases were surrounded by a very dense community, or I don't know if you can call it a community, but a very, very dense area of strip clubs, uh, nightclubs, uh, brothel houses, hotels, and this was serving as magnets, throwing in women from the countryside who did not actually understand what they were getting into, or they were being trafficked from the rural areas to Angeles City and Olongapo City, those two cities. They were called sin cities. And then there was the issue of drugs, and uh, then the beatings, and there were several women who were murdered. One of them was just, uh, well, not a woman, a, a girl, a kid, you know. She was, I think, 12 or 13 years old, and she died from an infection because uh, a marine customer had used a vibrator on her, and it broke off and left pieces in her, in her vaginal canal, and she developed blood poisoning. So this was uh, the, the biggest question at the time, because the treaty between the United States and the Philippines on this basis uh, was coming to an end. And there were those who wanted to extend it. Of course, the U.S. wanted to extend it. But the Philippines, uh, us, we wanted the treaty ended and the basis gone. And so there was a very strong women's movement in the Philippines. But it needed international exposure. So I was asked if I would consider uh, helping. So I did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And that changed my my life completely. Mm -hmm. Really. You know, I was an activist from uh, my teenage years, but I've always felt like... uh, I didn't come from the the class I was advocating for, you know, so there was always a a kind of detachment in you know when I look at the, at the work. But with the women's movement, suddenly some things which uh, I couldn't understand before became very clear. It was personal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And you're also, you're the international spokesperson for Affirm's Purple Rose campaign, which deals specifically with the trafficking of Filipino women. What is the situation um, with trafficking in the Philippines today? Oh, it's uh, very difficult to uh, make a distinction between trafficking and prostitution in the Philippines. It's uh, connected to the tourist industry, of course, and it's connected to uh, cyber sex, uh, the cyber sex industry, which centers around the use of children. We are, I hate the word, 
I hate to use the word Mecca, but we are one of the centers for uh, cyber child prostitution, you know. Um, the last time I was in Cebu, which is an island in central Mindanao, uh, central uh, Visayas, the women there were telling me about uh, how children were used for this. And the customers were mostly Australian, German, people in Europe, American. And sometimes uh, the customer would make an arrangement to come and visit. And that's it. That child is right, basically. Yeah. So it's it's difficult to to make that distinction now. Tourism provides uh, roughly 11% of the uh, the gross income of the Philippines. So, so it's a very very big section of the economy. And you know, I'm interested to learn more about the women's movement in the Philippines. What are some key differences between? the women's movement in the Philippines and the women's movement in North America? And are there things that Western feminists could learn from from Filipino feminists? This is the situation. It's, it's like this. We had a reproductive health law, which only provides for contraception for the very poor. And uh, that was fought over for 17 years. It was a very mild law. No abortion, no nothing, just contraception. But it couldn't pass Congress for 17 years. It's an indicator of the status of women in the Philippines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, uh, it's a Catholic country. And it's very macho country. There are eternal discussions about whether uh, a man saying hi, babe, to you in the street is catcalling or he's just being friendly. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Things that we accept as, you know, this is really an imposition on a woman in uh, Western countries. These are just par for the course of the day for a woman in the Philippines. And then uh, we have this issue with uh, the definition, the legal definition of statutory rape, which is set at the age of 11, which uh, by implication makes the age of consent 12 years old. Jeez. Yeah. So in the United States, uh, there is a big difference uh, with the women's movement here, we are also divided, but based largely on uh, ethnicity and color. And it's very hard to cross over, to have a mixed ethnic constituency. But I think we're trying to resolve that now. A firm is doing that. And there are coalitions all over the place because women are coming to realize that there is no one ethnic community that can carry the changes that we need to effect in the United States. On that note, the term intersectionality 
has become really commonplace these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, like to the point where it's become like a buzzword even, and it's used all the time online, and it's used often by white people to sort of demonstrate politically correct politics, I would say, you know, what's sometimes <laughs> called virtue signaling. But I'm concerned that many people who do label themselves intersectional in quotations don't really understand what that term means. What does intersectionality mean to you? Well, it's not simply difference, which is how, by and large, you know, it's vulgar interpretation. Uh, I'm different, therefore I'm intersectional. No, that's not it. <laughs> Ironically, uh, we were the first to like come out and say uh, we are for both transnational and intersectional feminism. And actually, Kimberly Crenshaw marched with us, uh, as, uh, I think about three years ago, uh, during the Million People's March on, of Black Lives Matter. And we were the only delegation, we and Sister Circle Collective, we were the only delegation who carried the names and photographs of all the black women killed by the police. And so Kimberly was there, and she was marching with us and some other people. And from that came the the movement to Say Her Name, the campaign mm. Say Her Name, yeah. But the thing was, uh, the thing is, uh, intersectionality is an is a way of analysis. It's a method of analysis. It is a theory of power and power relations, which seldom this concept seldom appears. Yeah, in the rather casual way people use the term. For us, it is understanding our place as a nodal point of interlocking systems of oppression. We call it the trihelix DNA of exploitation in an advanced capitalist society. And this is like uh, race, gender, and class. And we very seldom ever take a position without considering those three aspects. And intersectionality is not a word for individual liberation. It is a word for collective liberation. I think this is what a lot of white women do not understand, white people in the United States, you know, do not understand. They think intersectionality expresses itself in individualism. It's not. It's a collective. It's a, it's a coming together of one's individual position and collective position in society. It's actually locating yourself in the collective, in understanding the collective, which is enduring the same interlocking systems of oppression. So I know uh, people have said you you are Western feminists, etc., etc. Well, no, we're not. We look at everything. We look at the economics of it. We look at the politics of it. We look at the 
social aspect. We we try to be very comprehensive. Now the thing with both uh, transnational feminism and intersectional feminism, this was developed in in academia and by mm. academics. Uh, Mohanty you know, developed transnational feminism and Kimberly intersectional feminism, but this. Uh, Although based on actual lived experience, so our task now is to use this as as a, as guides, but only as guides in our action on the ground, and then to discard, accept, change aspects and parts of uh, of these two perspectives depending on what we experience in our work uh, organizing, educating, and mobilizing women. One of the things I find really frustrating about Western liberal feminism is its lack of understanding or interest in class and the way that capitalism and patriarchy work together to keep women vulnerable and oppressed. Um, and I find that in general, like an Americentric kind of attitude plagues liberal feminism, you know, the kind of feminism that we hear about in the media, in mainstream media, especially is really focused on celebrity culture and what celebrities have to say about so-called feminism. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, generally like no critique of corporations and, things like the beauty industry and you know what's so great about a firm is that the, is that you have such a strong analysis of how these various systems of power intersect to keep women poor and vulnerable and disempowered and those who talk about intersectionality in the US often still don't criticize like pop culture and mainstream media and the sex trade and the beauty industry and all these things that again are sort of totally rooted in capitalism and, and corporatism. How do you see things like capitalism, colonialism, imperialism contributing to women's oppression in the real world? You know, how, how should we be looking at um, feminism and women's rights mm -hmm. within those contexts? Well, a firm has a requirement, a very strict requirement about study. So we study, and so we don't, we don't stop with capitalism. You know, we actually start with the rise of class. And I think this is what is lacking in uh, the public's understanding of what feminism is and how women's oppression is related to the concepts of private property and class evolution, you know, the evolution of class. Mm -hmm. We have a four-hour discussion on the creation of patriarchy by Lerner. You know, the whole book is required reading. <laughs> so we at least understand how it is that in every class society, women are oppressed. I think that's the very fundamental thing that we need to understand first of all. Because capitalism does not exist uh, historically. Uh, historically. Um, 
independent of its historical evolution, and so it carries forward all of the traditions and uh, concepts which enabled class to develop and survive. So that's one thing, that's the first. And then second, we are women of color. We call ourselves transnational women because we come from uh, lands and cultures which had experienced uh, colonialism and which are now experiencing imperialism uh, with its uh, use of corruption and the local oligarchy to maintain its power over these lands, you know. So those, those are the things. I, I think uh, in the United States, class is very rarely uh, used in uh, political analysis because, you know, the slogan is out of the many, one. But if you do class analysis, you divide. You say out of the one, many. On a daily basis, uh, colonialism, capitalism, and imperialism, these are lived realities for women of color in this country. And so we understand that. But I know we like to talk about the weaknesses of the liberal feminism and what we call white feminism and so on. I, I'm great friends with Gloria Steinem. And even she would say, it's not a question of getting a bigger slice of the pie, but rather baking a whole new pie altogether. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's impossible. You cannot attain gender equality where there are class and race divisions. That's why we say interlocking systems of oppression. Now, this kind of blindness is uh, conversely reflected in the left when they talk about class and nothing but class and do not see the other systems that keep people uh, marginalized and exploited. In the wake of Donald Trump's win, um, some leftists have argued for inclusivity and unity, but you know which are which are nice ideas, um, mm-hmm. and certainly you know if we're going to fight these incredible powers, we need to have solidarity and work together. But mm-hmm. considering the deep divisions and conflicts among leftists and and between leftists and feminists, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you think those goals are even possible or worthwhile? You know, how could we possibly accomplish that? I do not know. We're trying, really. We're trying so very hard. And it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult. Do we have a multi-ethnic uh, constituency? and the community needs of uh, this uh, our of our constituency are sometimes different and sometimes you know the same but the expression of those needs uh, you have to navigate the difference in the expressions 
of those needs, how how they are brought forward, you know, by the women of specific communities. It's hard, I must admit. Mm-hmm. But I think we should do. Uh, this is my view, personal. We should do what gorillas do. Uh, gorillas are small formations, deeply rooted in towns and villages. But when they have to attack a major formation, they come together, and then afterwards they go back to being their own uh, formations in their own uh, locations. And I think that's what we should do politically, you know, come together to address macro issues, but disperse when it comes to micro issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just a tactical theory that I'm thinking of. (laughs) Mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. know if it will work. What do you think, what are some other concrete things that you think leftists and feminists should be doing right now and what they should be focusing on right now to counter the racism, misogyny, the neo-fascism supported by the Trump presidency? Uh, I think what is seriously lacking is the link between racism and sexism. I do not see it, you know. They have already noted that all of these white men who march, uh, the neo-Nazi formations, these are actually middle-class white males, okay? So we understand the class aspect to this issue. We understand the racism embedded in the issue, but the sexism has not surfaced. I think it's very telling that... uh, the first death in this growing confrontation is that of a woman, mm-hmm. and we should really take that to heart, you know. And this is a woman who was actually working as a paralegal, meaning helping those who are in conflict with the justice system in this country. Mm. Yeah. A firm recently advocated for what the organization calls a return to the foundational ideas of American feminism, concepts and wisdom drawn from tribal societies, particularly the Iroquois. I wonder if you can talk about what does that mean? Like, what are, what are those foundational ideas? Where do they come from? I think uh, because I'm Filipina, I'm kind of fatalist. <laughs> So this started uh, about, I think, almost four years ago when uh, Sylvia McAdam, and I cannot pronounce her last name, of uh, of Idle No More uh, came to New York and we hosted her public lecture. And uh, this was so fascinating for us because we were at the time studying and socialist uh, economic formation. And we realized that so far the extant model uses uh, capitalist uh, production organization for socialism. And we saw this in uh, the USSR and we saw this in uh, China. And we saw the results. If you want to create socialist values, in a socialist way of life, 
why, how do you organize your production so that it reflects those values? That was the main question. And so we started studying uh, tribal societies because we were curious as to how gender and not having private ownership of the means of production come together to create a viable society that is not exploitative of women. We're still studying it. And then we realized that the history of the United States began actually with the same curiosity on the part of the pioneers of the women's movement here. That was the first. And the second was we got tired of being told we are being influenced by Western feminism or that feminism is from the West. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm Filipina. 1907, we had... Uh, Asociación Feministas de las Filipinas, you know, 1907. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The women had been struggling. We may not have called ourselves feminists, but since the beginning of time, women have been fighting for rights, uh, social, political, and economic. So we're still studying, and uh, we hope to deepen our our learning today, actually, I was very happy to have uh, received uh, confirmation that Pura Fe is coming to our summit. She is a very well-known uh, singer, performer, uh, First Nation. She lives in uh, Saskatchewan, and she will be speaking on women in the tribal culture. She just wants a new project called the Ulali Project. This is, a, I think, a quartet of female sing singers uh, singing a cappella, all the native uh, songs of North America, I mean Canada and the United States. And they are working on water songs, which I thought was quite fascinating. I mean, in contrast to the constant, you know, product, cultural products of capital and imperialism, which is always about sex, money, woman, blah, 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 you know, and then there's, there are all these traditions about water, land, soil, and so on. And, and you mentioned there's an event coming up in October. Can you tell me about that? Every two years we have a summit. And there are always two aspects to the summit. One is public and one is private. The private one uh, involves all the members or at least the leadership of the various chapters of a firm meet and lay out the uh, direction, programs, you know, actions for the next two years. So we're doing that, the private one. And then the public conference is actually launching our new theoretical thrust, you know, and also gathering information from those who will attend on how to deal with the current situation, because this is really a very bad situation we're in now. So one of the things we're going to tackle at the summit 
is the issue of prostitution. Because mm-hmm. we come from countries where uh, there are huge uh, sex industries, you know, as a result of uh, of uh, colonialism, occupation, and imperialism. I know this is a very contentious subject. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it is. Uh, which is surprising, I guess, that that would be such a contentious subject within feminism, because the sex trade is something that seems like an obvious thing to oppose as as a political movement that is opposed to exploitation, to misogyny, to racism, to right. capitalism. Yeah, I, I, it's the coercive demand that we use a kind of playboy philosophy to define feminism. The liberation of sexuality is what comprises feminism. But nobody looks at what that liberation entails or how it is defined under capital. Uh, You mentioned the cosmetic industry and so on and blah, blah, blah. All of these are like accessories to the major contention that men have a right to have sexual access on the bodies of the female, the young, the poor, the vulnerable, the powerless, basically. And so this is one of the things that we really have to study, not only study, but oppose. Our position is very clear. We are for the decriminalization of those who practice prostitution, but we are for the criminalization of those who do the business of prostitution, meaning where the money is. Mm -hmm. People who profit, who benefit from the sale of bodies. It is a very contentious issue because we understand that there are very poor sections uh, who who have to resort to this, you know, to survive. They call it survival prostitution, for instance, and I say all prostitution is survival prostitution, uh, not only economically, but sometimes spiritually. And I totally agree with you. Um, Thank you so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed it. And (laughs) thank you so much for all your incredible work. I'm so inspired and I I learned so much from the work that you do and from Affirm's work also. So, So I'm really grateful and I know that a lot of women are as well. Thank you. I hope we just hope to contribute a little bit. You know, whatever we can to the women's movement. We're quite aware that the movement is huge and vast. And we're only a very small part of it. But we will work to add as much as we can. Thank you. I'm very flattered. (laughs) (laughs) I've been meaning to interview you for a long time. So I'm glad that we finally got around to it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. You just heard an interview with feminist activist and prolific writer Ninochka Roska. 
For more on her work, visit ninochkaroska.com. And to learn more about Affirm, visit Affirm, that's A-F-3-I-R-M dot org. Affirm's National Summit will be held on October 21st in New York City. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, B.C. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.